0: When we have such densely interconnected networks that tend to be polarized between precisely two poles that hate each other and barely ever talk to each other, there is an intensification of the need for need for intellectual humility, I would say. Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast
1: with Charles Cassidy and Igor Grossman. Over the next hour we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. This is our 21st episode, if I'm not mistaken. Right, Charles? It's a big one, 21st birthday. 21st. Excellent. <laughs> and in some languages, uh, I think that's like a, a big number. Yeah. And we really appreciate your support. Continue rating us, uh, whatever platform you're using because it helps to promote our podcast. We do it for free. We do it for you and we really we do, appreciate we do it your support. Love. We do it for love. We do it for the love of science and the love of wisdom. (laughs) 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 All right. We have a special guest today, Mark Alfano, who is an associate professor of philosophy at Delft University of Technology. Is that correct, uh, Mark? Delft is the current place?
2: I needed to check mark like I was reading one of your papers and it was by you and your colleague Brian Robinson and mm-hmm. uh, it was called uh, cool name I know you are but what am I I, I like that <laughs> name for um but um it, it was talking about educating virtues and some of the problems and challenges and potential ways forward with that um but it was quite interesting at the start you were saying one of you and I don't know which one of you it was so hopefully we can find out but um <laughs> the school you went to either you or Brian, when you were younger, you were actually graded on the sort of development of your virtues. So my first question is, was that you? And my second question was like, what was that like if it was you? So yeah,
0: was it you? Uh, yeah, it was me. Okay. Um, yeah. And it was, uh, I was actually homeschooled up until until high school. Okay. Um, Oh, so my family is uh, extremely conservative and religious. Okay, Um, so they were trying to keep us away from the the bad secular public school. Yeah. And uh, we had a curriculum from Bob Jones University, which you can look up uh, if you want to find out what that's like. It's a sort of a right wing, arguably white supremacist sort of worldview that privileges uh, a certain interpretation of protestant christianity is sort Mm -hmm. of ground truth so that was the the sort of background and our report cards yeah they they would have rows for things like you know math reading uh writing history but also for for virtues curiosity i think was one Mm -hmm. the one that always annoyed me was obedience (laughs) Um, and and i remember you know I, i think i must have been around fifth fifth grade or so mm. thinking like, wait, why, why am I getting assessed on obedience? This yeah. doesn't seem right. Yeah.
2: And you can't um, argue against a grade for obedience either, can you? Well, I'll just <laughs> mark you down further. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. So, um, it, 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 it's something that, you know, didn't even occur to me for a long time. And then I got started thinking about educating for virtues. And mm. then the question is like, okay, well, which virtues who gets to say, yeah. and how are they being measured? Um, mm-hmm. And I think these are really difficult questions. That um, right. if you answer them wrong, you can do a lot of harm. So that that's sort of the <laughs> the, the background story for that piece of the the paper with Brian.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. I mean that that's uh, really interesting that you you've now come full circle to saying. That was something that you, you weren't thrilled about the concept of uh, on the being the student end of it. But now you're coming back to it, it with a new approach. Um, but is there, any, is there anything that you're directly sort of, well, not channeling is a strong word, but are, are those experiences um, influencing you or in the back of your mind when you're kind of aware of some of the pitfalls of of how this can go wrong?
0: Yeah, I I guess. I mean, it's hard to know how... Things that happen to you when you were 10 influence yeah. you when you're in your 30s. Yeah. But I'd, I'd like to think that I'm aware of how easy it is to mm-hmm. sort of settle implicitly and in advance on a list of virtues, decide that that's what everyone needs, and then just go at it rather than thinking, okay, well, there's different types of people um, it's important in society that we have some diversity for all kinds of different reasons. Not everyone needs all of all and only the same traits. It's going to depend on you know the kind of person they are to begin with, as mm-hmm. well as the role that they're playing. Yeah. So I'd like to think that I have a more supple conception yeah. of yeah. educating for, for for intellectual virtue, but we uh, probably have to ask someone else whether that's true.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we can't rely on a self-report for that one. <laughs> um,
1: but so, so, so actually, I have, I have a quick question yeah. there, though, uh, Mark. When you were thinking about what virtues to teach, or what would be the virtues that you could uh, focus on first? uh what were the first ones that did come to your mind and uh, did you make a, a distinction between what some uh philosophers and lay people describe as sort of moral virtues and what we Partially talked about here, namely this kind of more epistemically oriented virtues.
0: Yeah, I've written about a a bunch of different virtues. I actually have a Mm -hmm. uh, a book about um, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, on virtue coming out uh, later this month. All right, Um, great. He's he's especially interested in, in intellectual virtues, primarily curiosity and intellectual humility, but also three sort of virtues that all have to do with the emotion of contempt. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So the first one is he calls it uh, the pathos of distance, which has to do with like feeling appropriate contempt for other people, but also aspects of oneself. Um, He seems Mm -hmm. to think that it's it's required for for changing as a person to be able to say, you know, Uh, that thing about me, that's really not something I need. I I can do away with that. It's not important. Wow, that's um, and I've he never has,
2: heard of that as a, as a virtue, but you know that does kind
0: it's of. It's really idiosyncratic, yeah. yeah. But I think there's something to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he's got sort of an ugly picture, but the, you know, the idea is something like you need to sort of train up and fine tune your your sense of contempt socially so that you can apply it reflexively to yourself um mm. which ha- has obvious um you know negative externalities yeah. for your that's relationships right.
1: but, <laughs> but Wait, back um, to aristotle the, to what extent do you do it
0: versus not do it
2: Yeah,
0: like, yeah. Wh- just the wh- right amount
2: i suppose that's right, right.
0: <laughs> but the others that, that he talks about are having a, a sense of humor mm-hmm. and this is related because it has to do with being able to laugh at yourself not taking yourself too seriously, at least in certain circumstances. Mm. And then this last one that he calls solitude, or uh, in German it's einsamkeit. The idea is something like a collective version of the contempt virtue. So it's having the ability to, to sort of criticize your in-group, to, mm. to look with contempt on the unworthy aspects of your, of your uh. in-group, rather than of your, yourself as an individual
1: it's interesting because this is something that comes up when you look at people who move from one country to another and uh, there are there's there's several disclassifications, how immigrants relate to the initial group, the new group, and uh, so on. And so there are two ways you can go about it. So this kind of distance from your initial group and maybe not quite the appreciation of the out group is one way to do it. And the other one is somehow try to embrace both to some extent or go beyond this group distinction. So some mm. people talk about this kind of shared humanity idea, mm. but that's a very different strategy than this kind of solitude idea, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so so Nietzsche thinks that we tend to sort of imbibe the the culture around us too easily. Mm. Um, I, see. And so I see. This is why he talks about it in terms of solitude. You, you need to sort of like get away from time to time in order to get some perspective is sort of the idea. And, you know, he himself was very clearly a, a sort of cosmopolitan. He's constantly talking about, you know, be we good Europeans rather than just, you know, we Germans. And he lived, you know, in Germany, and Switzerland, and Italy. Um, That's right. He, he moved, moved around quite a bit, especially for somebody who had so many health problems as he did. So I think that there's, there's something to that, being able to appreciate what's good about your you know, his, historical in-group, at least, uh, but also being able to see what's wrong with it. Mm, and if you yeah. look at, say, you know, what's going on in the United States right now with people um, insisting that we not take down these Confederate statues, um, yeah. that seems to me a, a nice uh, sort of case study or example of people being able, just completely unable to handle criticism of their, their in-group and their culture.
1: I was thinking about that. So what is actually intellectual humility? So we didn't discuss that yet. So maybe, Mark, you can introduce your definition. Or I mean, not necessarily your personal definition, but the one that you're working with, because I'm sure there are more than one definition. So what is intellectual humility?
0: Yeah, so I, I think of intellectual humility as a complex disposition that relates to thinking, feeling, and behavior. It's got Different facets. Uh, one mm-hmm. facet is open-mindedness, and this has to do with acknowledging the limits of your own knowledge or your own intellectual capacities and a sort of a desire to to gain knowledge irrespective of of what others think of you or or your status. Um, right. The second facet of intellectual humility is I call it intellectual modesty, and this has to do with having l- low concern for your reputation. Um, Maybe not Mm -hmm. zero concern, because reputation is is actually important, but not inflated concern for reputation, because that can get in the way. You know, if you make your career defending a certain view, that's your reputation now. If you then change your mind and say, actually, that view was wrong, Mm. that can be harmful to your sort of standing in the discipline, for instance. Mm. The third aspect or facet of intellectual humility is I call it engagement, and mm-hmm. the basic idea is that it has to do with motivation, specifically motivation to engage in inquiry, even inquiry that might fail or that might um, lead to truths that are uncomfortable or hard to mm-hmm. accept. Mm-hmm. And then the the, the last uh, facet, the fourth facet, is. Uh, I call it corrigibility or you could say correctability. So the idea here is that when someone tells you that you're wrong, that you've made a mistake, that you've engaged in a fallacy, that the evidence doesn't actually support what you're saying. You don't just respond by getting angry or withdrawing, but instead by engaging and potentially changing your mind, but not necessarily, but uh, not just running away or, or turning it into a confrontation.
1: That's really interesting. So, how are these features similar or distinct from this broader concept of wisdom that some philosophers have or psychologists have? Do you think it's a synonym for wisdom? Do you think this is just like some features of it, or is it something entirely distinct?
0: When I think about wisdom, I think about not just the intellectual or epistemic domain, mm-hmm. but sort okay. of the whole of life. So I take it that wisdom has to do with having had enough experience to know what's good, what makes for a worthwhile life for different kinds of people in different communities at different stages of their life. And some of that is going to involve inquiry. Some of it is going to involve disagreement. Some of it's going to involve changing your mind. But it's also going to involve things like, you know, appropriately valuing friendship and appropriately mm. valuing instrumental goods like money and, and power. So I, I would say that intellectual humility is quite a bit narrower than full-fledged wisdom.
1: Right. So, so basically, like it's an epistemic feature, so something about how to process knowledge and information and how to correct yourself, but it's not doesn't have those social features and knowledge-based features that... Well, I guess some people would say you need to live a good life, whatever yeah, that means. And I, think,
0: <laughs> I, I, I think that you know certain kinds of knowledge and certain kinds of understanding are intrinsically valuable and part of a good life. But mm. there's more to to life than that. It sort of depends on the type of person you are as well. I mean, some some people are you know scientists, philosophers, other researchers. They they really get off on thinking about things and inquiring mm. into things. Uh, and, right, and for right, them, right. That's, that's a passion. Um, and for other people, less so. And that's fine. So I, it depends, I think, to some extent on, you know, the, the kinds of instincts and drives and preferences and values that you have either innately or, or through enculturation. Interesting. So, okay, so next question related to that.
1: So um, as some people uh, say that it's, like it's a pursuit of truth that is supposed to be sort of like the most uh, important goal for uh, humans. Um, Is that sort of what intellectual humility sort of uh, tried to accomplish? Sort of like, is is this the process through which you will be able to come close to that if you are going into that direction in the first place?
0: So I think that part of intellectual humility involves knowing which truths are worth seeking out as well. I see. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you can just like count the forks in your drawer and then, you you know, now you've got more truth. Um, <laughs> there's all kinds of, of, you know, silly counterexamples like that in, in the philosophical literature where people say, yeah, the truth is worth having, but it depends on which truths. Mm. Some of them are more worth having than others. Um, and that's going to depend on maybe what you can do with them, right? So there's a sort of instrumental value to, to pursuing the truth, but also to things like self-knowledge. So there's a lot of people who think that knowing yourself, knowing the kind of person that you are, knowing your community, knowing mm-hmm. your history, these are especially and intrinsically valuable as opposed to you know knowing how much to, how much to tip when you go out to eat. So this is Charles is always accusing me of this.
1: Okay, Charles, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. So Charles was like, like, Igor, you talk about wisdom and you talk about intellectual humility and that you should consider other people's opinions and be modest. But then how how do you then motivate people to fight if uh, if there is a reason to fight? What about intellectual fragility? So like you don't have enough confidence in your understanding if you constantly just present yourself as this modest person a you may not believe that your opinion is right in the first place and b uh you may not be able to motivate people so anyways uh, mark what is your opinion have you encountered this type of arguments and how would you respond to this uh, ideas that you know like arrogance is unhelpful of course but uh there may be dangers to be too modest about your knowledge
0: yeah, that's uh, it's a really difficult problem. And part of it has to do with sort of psychometric scales and how these tend to get developed and deployed. Mm. In the philosophical tradition, especially related to Aristotle, there's this idea that every virtue is an average or a mean or a kind of median between two different vices. So, for example, courage would be located between uh, being sort of rash or reckless on the one hand and being a coward, on the other hand, the idea then would be that well, if intellectual humility is kind of like that, then you could go too far in one direction by being arrogant, but you could go too far in the other direction by being diffident or servile. So what you need is something sort of fine-tuned in the middle. This is really hard to model mathematically. If you're you're thinking of having like a scale, um, mm-hmm. you don't want to say that you know the people who score in the middle of the scale for intellectual humility are are the ones who are like ideally humble right so even the scale that mm-hmm. I developed has this problem it doesn't have a kind of middle point that's some sort of ideal it's just one polarity is the best is 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 the humble polarity and the other is the arrogant polarity I, I've seen one attempt to try to or I've seen a couple of attempts to figure this out conceptually so my Uh, My friend uh, Alessandra Tanesini at University of Uh, uh, Cardiff has Mm -hmm. uh, written a bit about this. Heather Battley at University of Connecticut, along with Dennis Whitcomb, have written a bit about this from a sort of conceptual point of view, sort of trying to figure out the the paradox there, if Mm -hmm. there is a paradox. And they're especially concerned with people who are, say, in oppressive circumstances. Like uh, they use Frederick Douglass, the Mm -hmm. former slave, uh, as an example. Like he was not particularly humble and that probably was a good thing um but then from a more psychometric point of view i've seen a a dissertation that tried to to figure this out but it it turned out to be so mathematically hard to model that they ended up going with the the old-fashioned kind of um, (laughs) bipolar scale so it's really tricky it it is I
2: i was just having i mean the reason why that that occurred to me i was having a conversation with a friend from work about this and and i was banging on about the importance of you know being humble about your opinions and you know being aware of other perspectives and always reaching out to other people to see how they view things which is something i've just kind of sort of imbibed as a completely obvious good and this friend was kind of going i mean she just had a completely different perspective on it um and she was saying I think it's quite important for people to not easily be, um, you know, knocked off their perspective. And I think maybe it said more about me that, uh, you know, I was more likely as a default to be overly bold. Um, so I could see the benefit in the opposite, but it, it's just something that I reckon probably have a sense that it probably occurs quite a lot in normal life is the intellectual fragility being almost as much of a problem as too much intellectual humility. So it's just it's just interesting when we're having an, an episode about the importance of intellectual humility to sort of acknowledge the fact that there is a danger in too much too much humility.
1: Yeah. Okay so final question about this Uh, A block about intellectual humility, and that is, okay, so I can't stop myself, but, you know, I have a hat as a cultural psychologist sometimes, as a person who studies how cultures change. And so, uh, what do you think, uh, Mark, about uh, how this unfolds in different cultures? I'm just thinking, how adaptive is it to be virtuous these days, uh, versus virtues, even let us say, two election cycles back. If you think about the American <laughs> political history,
0: <laughs> oh dear. Usually, it it uh, takes less than an hour for uh, my esteemed president to show up uh, in any conversation. <laughs> um, so I, I'll I'll go back further than eight years. All right. If you look at uh, say the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, mm-hmm. the heroes in these in these epics. Don't seem particularly humble. They're bragging all the time. That's right. They're they're constantly engaged in uh, one-upsmanship. You might think that the notion of humility is just absent from the ancient Greek world. Uh, it's not entirely true. They they still have a sort of humility towards the divine or the cosmos. Mm-hmm. They know that if you if you go up against the gods, you're gonna you're gonna lose pretty badly. Um, so right. th- there is a kind of recognition of. Their own limitations, but within the human sphere, mostly it's a a matter of antagonism and one-upsmanship. If you fast forward a bit to sort of platonic uh, Athens, um, again, this notion of humility it doesn't really have a name, and the sorts of dispositions that are in the neighborhood are a little bit different. But you know, if you think of Socrates, he's famous Mm -hmm. for, among other things, saying that the one thing he, he knew was that he did didn't know anything, which sounds a lot lot like intellectual humility. Mm. And he's constantly engaged in inquiry, right? So the, the Socratic dialogues, especially the early ones, it's all Socrates asking questions. He's not making assertions. He's not making arguments. Eventually, he gets to those. But he starts by expressing his ignorance by saying, I don't know what this is, you tell me, right? So even all the way back then, there was, at least for some sorts of people, a value to a certain disposition that's in the neighborhood, let's say, of of intellectual humility or of humility more uh, more broadly. Um, mm-hmm. It's really with the Christian tradition, especially the, the Latin Christian tradition, that you get the, the concept of humility that we're more familiar with now. Uh, but, you know, there was a backlash to that during the, the Enlightenment. So David Hume... Um, famously criticizes uh, what he calls the monkish virtues, uh, which includes uh, humility and modesty. Hmm. Um, So this is a a disposition that has gone through multiple revaluations over the course of of centuries, and different people have associated it with different valences or with different uh, degrees of valence within the positive and negative, negative spectrums. Now, you, your your point was more recent than that, I, I take it. The idea is that if you're going toe-to-toe with someone who is the the world's greatest exemplar of arrogance, then being humble is maybe not the right approach. Is that sort of the the idea?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I was also thinking about different cultures. I mean, I, I had the I don't know, I'm not sure if it's a privilege. It's definitely been my experience growing up in different cultures, and I've seen um, that academic cultures vary quite dramatically, uh, be it in Eastern Europe, in Germany, or in North America. The discourse, the, the general discourse, if you look, even, even within the United States, you compare the Midwest to the New Yorkers, and they uh, oh, yeah, have sure. completely different cultures in terms of emphasizing Uh, modesty and humility versus being very direct. And and I guess like you may still be modest and humble, but how you communicate it may differ quite a bit. So I was not necessarily thinking about uh, Trump and uh, (laughs) uh, reactions uh, to Trump, uh, but uh, that is, of course, currently on the minds for many people, given the presidential debates uh, or pre-presidential debates that are going on TV for the Democratic Party.
2: Uh, Right. But I, I suppose it, it it is kind of it's kind of going into the next section, really. But like, you know, we're communicating differently. The sort of platforms we use for bouncing ideas and developing ideas and and forming opinions about the world uh, have changed quite considerably in the last sort of ten years. So, is there a sort of sense? That you're you're sort of getting interested in this area because you feel intellectual humility is is um, some sort of you know it's needed now more than ever, or is this just a coincidence that you happen to be interested in this now, or, or do you feel that it is a sort of a valuable needed uh, virtue to to be nurturing at this point in our history, particularly in the context of social media platforms?
0: I see. Yeah, I mean, saying now more than ever is always a bit dangerous. Yeah, but um, <laughs> yeah. There, there is, I think, a, a coherent story to be told about, you know, the last hundred thousand years or so of people becoming more densely interconnected via, you know, initially just speech, then you get writing, then you get telegraph, then you get yeah. telephone, then you, you know, eventually the, the internet and social media. When Uh, We have such densely interconnected networks, especially densely interconnected networks that tend to be polarized between precisely two poles that... That mm-hmm. hate each other and barely ever talk to each other. Mm. There is an intensification of the need for need for intellectual humility. I would say, not that it's somehow you know comes out of the blue. This mm. was never valuable before, but because of the the scale and density of the kinds of interconnections we have now, I would say it's it's become more important than it was even a decade ago.
2: You know, I was just taking a a slight step back there. You know, when you were saying about David Hume and the Enlightenment and this sort of, at that period in history, humility was sort of frowned upon because it was considered a sort of, and it sounds like it was considered a way of propping up this hierarchy that existed. Is there a sense that, you know, sort of comes in and out of fashion depending on where society's at, you know? So when you have a, uh, a the sort of project of the Enlightenment onwards is sort of dismantling some of these sort of hierarchies that humility doesn't seem like an appropriate or fashionable virtue but but we're not in that position now so we have a need for different virtues
0: yeah i mean so if, uh, immanuel kant famously said that the the sort of motto of the enlightenment is um sapere aude so have the courage to think for yourself mm. Mm. um mm. And that kind of individualism about inquiry, about making up your own mind is a very strong strand running through human history, especially from the Enlightenment to now. Um, But I take it that one of the things that we've started to realize more, more seriously recently is you can't really live up to that ideal. I mean, if you think about, like, how do you know when you were born? how do you know what you were named initially how do you know anything about the the history of the world before mm-hmm. you existed mm-hmm. all of this is dependent on other people um, how do you know how right. to tie your shoes right the, the vast majority of our knowledge is transmitted to us by others and we just have to take so much of that on trust, can you still think for yourself? Yes, in certain circumstances. Once you're on a sort of culturally inculturated platform of of knowledge that's been built for you by previous generations, but can you sort of start over from scratch the way that Descartes wanted to? No, of course not. That's, that's sort of a myth that is associated with you know, people who <laughs> don't think about what it takes to, to raise a child. <laughs> um, so, so I would say we need both of these things. We need to be able to know when to think for ourselves and to be adept at it when that's relevant, but also to know when to take things on trust from whom about what.
2: So, you have looked at the architecture of some of these social networks. And do you, wh- what do you find? Do you, I don't know how much sort of detail you have around this, but do you see evidence of intellectual humility uh, within social media uh, networks? Do you see people or just the are people just not speaking to each other at all and speaking to their own groups? And it's the kind of echo chamber idea. So, essentially, intellectual humility is not really relevant because. You're only speaking to people that you agree with anyway.
0: In the the social media that I've studied, which is primarily Twitter, indeed, you, you tend to find precisely two polarities groups that strongly disagree with each other and basically only talk within their own group. Right. So for instance, I, I've studied uh, the discourse about whether vaccines are safe. The sort of pro-vaccine people basically only talk to each other and the anti-vaccine people basically only speak to each other. Um, there's very little crosstalk and there's almost nobody who doesn't have a firm view, at least among those who, who are talking about it with any regularity. Right. The thing I would say about echo chambers is it it's almost too tempting a metaphor and when eli pariser first uh formulated that that phrase what he had in mind was not what we, what i just described but rather the ways in which targeted advertising online can lead people to fail to even know about the, those who disagree with them so his idea was uh, like if uh, i if i like and share and click on certain kinds of things, then Google is going to serve me some ads and not others. Uh, right. Web pages that have custom skins, depending on one's cookies, will show me some things and not others. It'll just be impossible for me to even find out that there are people who disagree with me. That seems pretty clearly to be false. Yeah. Um, people are quite a quite aware of those who disagree with them it's it's rather that they hate those people Mm. (laughs) and don't take them seriously as interlocutors rather than that they're they're just blissfully unaware of them
2: do do you get the sense when you're talking about intellectual humility to people that people are genuinely uh, motivated to do something about this or or do they ultimately just think well i don't really need to be intellectually humble because I don't want I don't want to listen to people that I've already decided are wrong.
0: Right. So I guess what the view that I've gleaned from talking to a lot of people about this now is yes, people do want to have some range of sources, but there's a kind of Overton window mm. and they they don't want to be hearing from sources who are let's say neo-Nazis. Sure. Right. That's just, so don't d- check that being box. able to yeah. decide what's beyond the pale yeah, um, is quite challenging, yeah. but also really important. Like I, I can uh, give you an anecdote when I was, this was in 2016, just before the U.S. presidential election. Facebook was going through one of their attempts to diversify the, the news feed. And they were doing this by um, recommending to people, well, why don't you like this group and see some of their content? Why don't you like that group or mm. that page mm. and, and see right, some right. of their content? They they did this by giving you stuff that was sort of counter to the things that they had inferred you, you cared about or, or liked. Right, so the negative um, image so of it, essentially. Yeah, but they, they went really way too far with this. So they were telling me, you know, why don't you like Donald Trump? let try sure like him just for
2: a couple of weeks. We're see how you guys get Yeah.
0: <laughs> but that was bad enough. But then it kept recommending to me a, a hate group. Oh, boy. Th- the name of it was Counter Message Memes for Fasci Goys. Oh. So what does that mean? So Fasci means fascist or fascist light. And Goys, they're essentially using a Yiddish term that refers that refers to people who are not Jewish. So they're saying right. fascist non-Jews. Yeah. Um, and Facebook kept recommending this group to me, and I kept reporting them uh, as hate speech, and the moderators kept saying, no, they're not hate speech. So I, I agree with you that mm. it can obviously go too far, but would I like to see you know some stuff that's a bit different from mm. my current settled view? Yeah, sure. Uh, But within limits. Yeah.
1: But what about like measuring intellectual humility? And um, we talked a tiny bit about that already. One thing uh, seems to be uh, particularly challenging is like when you ask people how humble you are. And then, of course, like Donald Trump comes back to mind, who's been claiming (laughs) that he is so humble that nobody can even comprehend how humble he is. So, (laughs) Mark, there's a term for that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I used it several times. Uh, so, w- w- how do you get around that? So, w- what is the approach that your lab has taken?
0: Yeah. So we we are using primarily self-report measures, and that does raise a, a, at least the potential of of a paradox because somebody who goes around saying, "Oh, yes, I'm I'm humble for sure. I'm humble." Maybe isn't. (laughs) Um, It doesn't actually work in the other direction. So somebody who says, "You know what? I'm I'm quite arrogant, and I'm fine with that." That's probably just true. (laughs) Uh, So it it's a a one sided kind of thing, but it is a a bit challenging. I don't think that there's an outright paradox like the liar paradox at play Mm -hmm. here. So the the liar, liar paradox is like, you know, I say this sentence that I'm speaking right now is false. Right. So if it's true, then what it says is true, namely that it's false. So that's weird. But if it's false, then what it says is false. So it must be true. Um, That's a really deep paradox. Mm -hmm. The intellectual humility paradox, to the extent that it is a paradox, has to do with how disposed someone is to sort of go on and on about how humble they are. And I've sort of come to the tentative conclusion that intellectually humble people they're probably, to some extent, aware of it in the background, but they've got better things to do than to to think about that. So they just go do those other things. If you force them to reflect on themselves by giving them a self-report questionnaire, they won't be completely off the mark in their self-assessment. And we have some evidence for that from from a couple of studies that we ran and published a paper on in uh, 2017, you can get um, some predictive validity out of this self-report. It is challenging, though. I'm always curious to find out whether there are other kinds of maybe indirect or behavioral measures that we could use in addition or instead to sort of triangulate this disposition.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, like I find it's uh, well, maybe in contrast to this uh, personality characteristics that we talked about, uh, like independently, like, you know, in our everyday discourse, when, I'm, when you ask somebody how open is this person, if you ask a person to rate their openness by themselves, uh, kind of like we talk about, we characterize other people, like this is an open person, this is a very reserved person. But, like, intellectual hum- humility is not something that I think we use, unfortunately, often enough, maybe in the common discourse. So, I would find it hard to, like, if you give me a scale, it's like, okay, so how intellectually humble are you? Um, right. It would be fairly, very difficult because I don't have a clue <laughs> how intellectually humble I am in general. Maybe but, but in some specific I would, I would,
2: situations. You could ask me about yeah. you and i think i would have be able to you know i because you were saying you know if you ask someone else will they be able to describe how yeah it? and i reckon from you know if someone has heard you discuss and bat ideas around uh, over over 20 podcasts or something they they'd probably be able to get a sense of of how intellectually humble you are i would say I mean, yeah, if you see yeah, but so that's
1: of- so that's the thing, right? Like, that's exactly the thing. So, so that's a, that's what Mark is talking about—the mm. behaviors that you look at uh, across multiple situations, yeah, yeah. and you look at specific behaviors, then you can guess it, and especially from a side. But also, like as a, as an observer, one thing that you cannot guess, I guess, about humility is what the initial impulses of the person were. That's only the you, it's only the subjective experience that can tell you that, unless you you're sharing that with your uh, with the observer. You know, like you can only see the final behavior mm-hmm. then, mm-hmm. but you don't see that initial impulse. Am I moderating something? Mm-hmm. Am I sort of uh, controlling sort of uh, this? Uh, am I correcting or not? Uh, which is yeah, another I- component of it.
0: But that's that's for sure true and and all of these measures are only getting at you know some of the variance in in behavior but i okay. I would agree for sure that just asking with a kind of technical term you know how intellectually humble are you would not be particularly effective, but that that's not what we do um, right. <laughs> we have people ag- agree or disagree with with various statements, so like the the open mindedness dimension we have people agree or disagree with a statement like. I think that paying attention to people who disagree with me is a waste of time, right? So that Mm -hmm. one's negatively scored. If you say, oh, yeah, for sure, it's a waste of time to pay attention to people who disagree, then you go down on the open mindedness Mm -hmm. um, scale or like um, only wimps admit that they've made mistakes. Right. (laughs) So that's the sort of thing that's more colloquial and will will be understandable by your average participant. If you say, you know, are you epistemically humble? People are going to be like, what the hell is epistemic humility?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's probably quite clear what the good, the right, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see them, but the right air quotes answer is. In, in those questions, you know, if someone's, you know, because I I, I I read some of the the items on the statement, and I was actually shocked. It di- I didn't come out very well from what I from the statements. Like, <laughs> like did you
1: come I, out very humble or not humble enough?
2: I, I well, I was ashamed to be honest. Um, it's like I don't take people seriously if they are very different from me. Well, I, if it's different opinions, yeah, I don't take them seriously because I think they come to the wrong conclusions. Um, that that was my first reaction, but I still know what i should say if i want to come out as intellectually humble so i suppose you're you're relying on people
0: being honest we are to some extent but we we did run a test of desirable responding to see you know okay so the the worry the worry would be if Mm -hmm. our intellectual humility scale positively correlated at a high level with desirable responding right that people are just telling us the good thing about themselves whether it's true or not yeah and and in fact um it didn't correlate very highly with desirable responding so i'm and that and that surprised me honestly that could also I, mean I
2: people of, don't aspire to intellectual humility
0: yeah i think that that probably is part of it so you know as scientists as researchers this is really deeply important to us yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, we're, we're, we're no being humble about someone. that yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I talk.
1: I think I mentioned that a few episodes ago. Like, I gave a talk uh, somewhere in Italy about, sort of, educators. And one raised the head. It's like you, you, you tell us that we need to control our confidence and be not be so confident and be intellectually humble, but. Good luck with that in our lives. And it starts to provide examples about how, you know, you will never be able to pass an oral exam if you don't know uh, all the answers. You can still fake it if you present yourself in a very confident way. Whereas if you know all the answers and you're sort of very humble in some ways and in terms of your presentation, then people will uh, not take you seriously. You may even get a bad mark. Uh, so mm. definitely... Uh, not the cultural discourse right now to be intellectually humble it's in many parts uh, of Europe, I'm sure. But let's, let's go beyond scales. And so one other thing that I found really, really exciting about your work is that uh, you're talking a little bit about sort of mining a person's uh, digital footprint as mm. a way to sort of get at intellectual humility. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What exactly do you mean by that?
0: Yeah. So this is a an idea that's been bouncing around in the literature and also a lot in industry for maybe a decade now that, you know, would it be possible to say, for instance, whether for, from just glancing at someone's Facebook feed, whether they are agreeable or not, whether they're right, right. Open, open or not? And the, the answer is, yeah, you can actually get a decent estimate of that that's sort of infamously what Cambridge Analytica did and used people's psychological profiles to target them with political ads mm-hmm. during the Brexit campaign and the U.S. presidential election in 2016. Um, mm-hmm. We don't know how effective it was because, of course, they're not giving out that information. But the academic studies of this kind of thing suggest that it's about as good as, as say, um, informant report. Now, what is what does that mean sort of methodologically? Well, there there are sort of two ways to approach it. A kind of bottom up approach is mm-hmm. using crowdsourcing where you just you take a bunch of someone's posts and then you feed them to a thousand people and ask them to say, you know, does this seem like the sort of thing that a minded person would mm-hmm. post or does it Does it not? And you just do this over and over again with lots of someone's posts. And then you can train a classifier on that data to classify further posts as high or low in whatever disposition that might be. This has the advantage of having tons of data built in, having real human evaluators uh, sort of providing the training data for the classifier. It has the disadvantage of being really brittle because if you try to use that same classifier not on someone's Facebook posts, but even, say, on their tweets, let alone their emails, it's going to be much less accurate. Um, mm-hmm. so, so these classifiers tend to be really brittle. But but they do a decent job on data sets that are really similar to the ones they're trained on. So that, that's the the sort of bottom-up approach. Uh, the The top-down approach is to have the researchers themselves Try to formulate the sorts of things that would typically count as expressions of a given disposition or trait. Right. Um, right. So, if somebody is typing in all caps, for instance, or they use a lot of exclamation points, uh, or they're asking questions rather than just making assertions, right? Right. That kind of thing can be used as well. And I'm, I'm actually about to start a project uh, with uh, Jay Van Bavel, who's a psychologist mm-hmm. at NYU, where we we're going to try at least to to integrate these two, to use both mm-hmm. approaches to train up a more robust classifier for for detection of intellectual humility wow. in people's uh, online behavior.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So you will be using Twitter data for this, I presume.
0: We'll we'll definitely use Twitter because that's got the the best API, um, mm-hmm. easiest to use. We'll probably also use others, probably Reddit. Uh, we we might go to some specialty things like Ravelry or... Um,
1: oh, I see. Yeah.
0: You know, we actually have some data from Stormfront. <laughs> so Lovely. Be interesting. <laughs> um,
2: I wanted to ask Mark about this idea of virtues, uh, the anti-individualist perspective on virtues, because I'd always thought of virtues as a kind of, you know, uh, something that r- resides within the individual. But you sort of talk about it being sort of shared across your group um and it's not not something i'd really heard about before so i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that but also what the the implications might be for if we're going to try say we are going to try and educate for virtues um what does this anti-individualist perspective bring to the table in terms of how we might best approach that
0: yeah so in personality psychology for sure but also i think in, in To a large extent, in folk discourse, there's this idea that, you know, traits are located in individuals. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And at least to some extent, that's got to be true. But think about something like being a good friend. That seems Mm -hmm. to me to be a pretty clearly valuable, important, morally good trait. But you can't have that trait all on your own you have to be in a relationship with another person who has a sort of corresponding or congruent disposition or or think about being in a trust relationship being mm-hmm. someone who, who who is appropriately trusted in certain ways yeah, you have to have certain dispositions in yourself, mm-hmm. um, but you also have to be in a relationship with someone who's giving you certain cues, who knows how to read you, who knows how far to push you, or you know what they can and can't appropriately ask for, and so on. So I, I think that certain kinds of virtues are embedded in relationships in in precisely this kind of way. That I don't have the full disposition, at least, unless I'm in a relationship with someone who has either the same or uh, a sort of congruent disposition, and we sort of go back and forth interacting with each other emotionally, behaviorally, Mm -hmm. um, through language, uh, and so on. And
2: do you think intellectual humility fits within that category? I,
0: I I think that it does. So, you know, think about how hard it is to be intellectually humble in Um, The context of a group that's really bad at inquiry, right? right? If you're the only one who's taking the inquiry seriously, you're going to start to get frustrated, Mm -hmm. you're going to start to, you know, just criticize other people rather than get on with the with the work. Or think about how you know sometimes you're in a say a seminar setting where like it's really just firing on all cylinders and like everybody right. is helping each other out asking just the right question of the right person in the at the right time. Hmm everybody makes each other a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I, I think that intellectual humility can, to some extent, work in that way. Like if if I'm trying to be open-minded and you just start feeding me you know, Nazi <laughs> propaganda, <then laughs> that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm trying to be open-minded and you're playing devil's advocate in just the right way, we can get a lot further than I would be able to do all on my own. So, so- I think that these traits can kind of interact with dynamically interact with each other and feedback on each other in ways that can either enhance or or undermine.
2: So so then in terms of applying that to you're in a school setting for example and you're trying to uh, nurture say intellectual humility in the school what does that perspective in suggest might be a better way of doing it rather than just sort of focusing on the individual.
0: Right so for instance think about the way that we do grading. You could have a grading structure where individuals get grades and know what everyone else gets and compete with each other. Mm. Or you could have a setting where they get individual grades but they don't know about each other's grades, but of course they'll gossip. Um, Or you could have a situation (laughs) in which um, you divide them into groups and the groups get grades and compete with each other. Or you could have an incentive structure where, you know, they have to reach consensus at the end and the entire class is graded together. There's all kinds of ways to set up the incentive structure of pedagogical encounters. And some of these are competitive at the individual level or cooperative at the individual level or competitive or cooperative at the the intergroup level Mm. and i think that this kind of incentive structure that we sort of just take for granted when we teach in many cases can actually influence the dispositions that it's worthwhile for the students to embody at least in in that context so it's a kind of training and we might end up training for dispositions that we don't really want. I mean, if you think about right. the difference between, say, like a a lab meeting and uh, an exam, right? yeah. that's a really different setting. And right. in, in my experience, at least, I learn a lot more at lab meetings than I do have ever learned from, <laughs> from exams. Mm.
2: Thanks so much for today, Mark. It's, it's been fascinating learning about the history and perhaps the future of intellectual humility. We really we really appreciate you sharing your insights and your expertise with us today. And uh, we've learned, both of us, a great deal. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation.
2: Thank you so much, Mark. And now it's time for a summary. We started off today talking about introducing virtues into the education system and, and the perils of this approach. Which virtues would we introduce and who decides? Society also needs a diverse range of people. So would we even want all students to necessarily develop the same virtues? Nietzsche also had some interesting and surprising contributions to virtue discussion, uh, stressing the importance of a sort of contempt enabling us to criticise aspects of ourself and our group when necessary. We, of course, discussed the definition and measurement of intellectual humility. Mark framed intellectual humility as a complex disposition with four different facets, open-mindedness, intellectual modesty, engagement and corrigibility or correctability. Uh, there are, of course, challenges associated with asking people to rate themselves on how humble they are. Uh, and we spoke about how considering... Um, one's behaviour in multiple situations might be a part of the solution. And we also spoke about intellectual fragility, so the the opposite of intellectual humility, and how it's important to have confidence in one's views and not to be too easily knocked off course. That could bring its own problems. We finished by considering intellectual humility and social media. So there doesn't seem to be too much evidence of intellectual humility at play on these platforms, um, with people largely speaking to their own groups anyway. People are interested in tools to broaden the diversity of uh, the sources in their new feed, but within limits. We don't want to be given uh, outrageous extreme propaganda, just uh, with a view to broaden our perspectives. Uh, Mark spoke about how... We can use uh, humans to train digital classifiers to pretty accurately rate people for different dispositions based on their social media posts. Uh, While these classifiers currently don't seem to be able to work very well on, on platforms different from the ones they were trained on, mark and uh, colleagues are currently looking on ways to help make this happen perhaps by telling classifiers to look out for certain behaviors associated with uh, in the case of intellectual humility asking questions for example so that's all for today until next time on the on wisdom podcast